Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. Hey, we're glad you're with us on the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Come on in. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. I'm with Jim Garrity, National Review, of course. He's also the author of Between Two Scorpions. And we've got good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And Jim, our good martini actually deals with T-Bone's very good friend, Cory Booker, the New Jersey senator. And uh, a guy who's been more impressive than we probably expected on the um, presidential campaign trail so far in 2020. But he might not be on that trail much longer because Cory Booker's campaign is essentially insisting that if they're going to stay in this race, they've got to ramp up their infrastructure in a number of critical states. And so they need to raise $1.7 million by the end of the month. And if they don't get it, they're probably going to have to shut everything down. Ed Morsey over at Hot Air is calling this the Oral Roberts approach to campaign fundraising, (laughs) hearkening back to Oral Roberts way back in the day, saying that if he didn't raise a certain amount of money, God was going to call him home. What do you make of uh, Cory Booker basically saying, look, if we're going to make this an actual push for a nomination, it's now or never? Um, I was kind of pleased to read this, not out of a, you know, uh, malevolent, well, okay, a little bit of malevolence towards Cory Booker, uh, but <laughs> but there's kind of a recognition that there are a lot of campaigns, they act like, oh, we're doing great, the, the people are behind us, we're getting this huge reaction everywhere we go, you know. I mean, we could see that nobody was listening to Bill de Blasio at the Iowa State Fair. And he used to campaign like, no, no, it's great. And then one day at Morning Joe, hey, I'm out. Never mind. Tom Vilsack, I think, was one of the most notorious uh, examples of this back way back in 2007. He said that his campaign's fundraising was terrific. This is right before the FEC filing. FEC filing comes in. It's nothing. It's, it's unbelievably lousy fundraising. And he announces he's leaving. And there was one reporter who called up and said, you said your fundraising was doing terrific. And it's like, yeah, I lied. <laughs> you know, I, I suppose you appreciate the honesty later. Cory Booker is not uh, sugarcoating it. Cory Booker is saying, look, if I don't get a big influx of money, I'm out of the race. And so I kind of admire a candidate who's willing. You know, a lot of people say, oh, this is just a desperate fundraising ploy. You know, it's just the same as the tone of all of those. If we don't get a whole bunch of money by, de- by midnight tonight. The Democrats are going to win everything. You know, the kind of emails I'm getting all day long, particularly as the end of the quarter comes up. The Booker campaign says, no, this is a real you know, message. This is our real assessment of where we are. Um, I think if he doesn't get a huge amount of money and he stays in the race, he's going to look even more foolish. This is kind of burning your ships like Cortez. This is like, you know, either we raise this money or we don't and we're out of here. And I kind of admire uh, a guy who's willing to, to you know, be straightforward about it, not pretending that things are going better than um, this is, the other thing is also I want to observe. I'll be a little bit sad if Cory Booker leaves. Not so much out of, you know, wow, Cory Booker is great, but just observation. Like, you look at a bunch of these guys. Eric Swalwell, uh, Bill de Blasio, John Hickenlooper, the, the whirling dervish of raw political charisma that is Seth Moulton. Um, <laughs> and for most of these guys, you're like, what are you doing what why you know how who outside your immediate family was like yes you should run for president you can do this you've got the the base of support you've got the name recognition america is clamoring to make you the next commander in chief whereas cory booker you can at least see the outlines there right he's the only african-american male in this race been kind of a you know national political celebrity since the newark days there was a time he once sounded conservative uh at least on you know school vouchers and school choice and things like that you know, again, this is not, uh, you know, conservatives will not be crying in their beer, you know, because we like beer, much like Brett Kavanaugh. <laughs> um, 
But you know that. But you know, as far as Democrats go, Cory Booker really isn't that bad. He's probably one of the. If he's out by Halloween, then that is kind of one of the more surprising developments. The standard used to be, well, you got to get into the debates, and the next one is, okay, you know, you got to do well in the debates. And I think most people would say, by most measures, Cory Booker's had three at least pretty good debates, and it hasn't done him any good. <laughs> you kind of bet, you know. So uh, good for you, Cory Booker, for being realistic about where you are. Good for everybody else for for seeing the situation clearly and not engaging in this denial the way a whole bunch of other candidates are. I mean, John Delaney's still in there, Greg. By the way, John Delaney is a congressman who's running for for president. For those of you who've forgotten, the one guy, the, the one guy who looked like the accountant from the the uh, the Untouchables, who actually knows how to get Capone because he did the math. <laughs> This is kind of fun, though, because it actually uh, gets closer to reality in politics. Remember, a few weeks ago, what were we talking about? We were talking about Kirsten Gillibrand producing $30 worth of T-shirts and selling them for a dollar just so she can get on the debate stage, as if just being in the debate was somehow going to magically transform her electoral prospects after two debates where she accomplished nothing. It shows that you need a lot more than just... 10 minutes over two hours to, to get your name and your and your message out there. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. One, I, There are probably a bunch of candidates who said, well, I'll do well in the debates and this will catapult me to the top, you know. And I don't think any of those candidates, anybody's done that. You know, if anybody jumped up to the top tier that was a surprise, I think you'd say Edge, and that was mostly from fundraising and I think generally, you know, glowing press coverage. Maybe you could say Harris, but then she dropped down after the second debate. Now she's, you know, down, I think you could even argue in the third tier. You know, winning in a crowded field is tough, and Booker was probably better equipped than most candidates out there. If he leaves the race, then like there's like eight other guys in this race who should be out of there. Julian Castro, we're talking about you. And Tulsi Gabbard had a great second debate. Did it even get her to a third debate? No. So, no, she might be in the fourth one. I got I got to check on that. We'll, yeah. we'll find out. Yeah, that's coming up pretty soon, actually. Well, at least for Cory Booker, he's even if he does have to exit the presidential race, he's got a job in the U.S. Senate. So he's coming back to Washington. For a lot of Republicans, though, in Congress, eh, not so much. Uh, they could stay. They just don't want to. So according to The Washington Post, and this gets a little confusing, 41 House Republicans have left national politics or announced they won't seek reelection since Trump took office. And they also say 40 percent and 40 percent of 241, which is what they came in with uh, two and a half years ago, is not 41. But nonetheless, people are leaving and they're leaving for a number of reasons. Number one, you have to assume because now they're in the minority and it really stinks to be in the minority in the House. You get no power. You can't really accomplish anything. And the other thing is, and this is true from the Washington Post story, you got people who are getting frustrated with Trump. There's a guy named Paul Mitchell, not the hair products guy, but uh, a former executive, uh, represents Michigan's 10th congressional district. And he says he's tired of waking up every morning to figure out what Trump's tweeted and what he has to respond to. So, Jim, what do you make of the fact that House Republicans are uh, not wanting to be there anymore? Yeah, so there's an aspect that this article kind of doesn't go into the depth I would have liked to have seen. I kind of wonder, of those 40-some who've left, and by the way, let's, you know, this includes the likes of uh, Paul Ryan. I mean, some of these are very big names here. We're seeing a bunch of uh, House Republicans from Texas depart in this cycle. That's a little bit surprising. How much of this stems from Tea Party Republicans and the wave of, of elected Republicans in 2010? Uh, 2014 midterms were also great. And look, what the Tea Party had a bunch of issues that uh, motivated it, but a big one was government spending. Uh, worried about the debt, worried about the deficits, worried about the long-term health of entitlements. 
taxed enough already as the, the TEA initial was. I mean, there was this general sense of, hey, we are going to Washington to reduce the size of government. We want government off our backs. Leave us alone. We, we can take care of ourselves. We don't need the nanny state. And Trump is a very different message. Uh, Trump is you know, not a guy who's all that worried about the deficit and the debt. In fact, we've got trillion dollar deficits again. Uh, Trump is not a guy who's particularly worried about the long-term health of the entitlement system. In fact, he was the one who was campaigning. He wasn't going to touch any of it. Also, a whole bunch of the people who were very big and active in the Tea Party um, are now, you know, have flipped as, as Trump took over the Republican Party in the 2016 cycle and as he became president. The fact that Mick Mulvaney, Mr. Tea Party, is kind of shrugging <laughs> at trillion-dollar deficits indicates just how fundamental and far-reaching the transformation of the Republican Party has been. Um, and so my suspicion is that if you're a Republican for whom this was a big issue, you are you're with a Republican. First of all, as you said, you're in the House, you're in the minority. If you're in the Senate, uh, you know, you're mostly dealing with passing uh, judicial confirmations. Uh, you know that the Democratic House isn't going to send in the legislation your way that you want. And even if there was by some miracle legislation you kind of liked was a good idea, McConnell was probably not going to let it come to the floor. Um, and if you, if you did get it, the odds of Trump signing it are up in the air. Donald Trump is a very unpredictable, erratic kind of leader where every day he wakes up, you see something on the morning news, and he decides decides to start tweeting about it. And all of a sudden, uh, that's what the day's news cycle is about. And you as a Republican congressman who got up the day and wanted to do something, you know, we do our jokes about infrastructure week, right? I mean, you, you, you really wanted to talk about issue X and Trump tweeted about issue Y. So now you're getting a million questions of, do you stand by Trump's you know, statement that rutabagas are the greatest national security threat that we're facing? Or what you know, Mika Brzezinski needs to be locked up in uh, in an internment camp or something. Whatever you know, and, and I'm sure for a lot of House Republicans, this is not what they thought they signed on for. Now, again, most of these seats, as you see, these guys, Repu- Republican House Republicans retiring, um, the Walter Jones seat, the seat we just saw in North Carolina earlier, you're generally getting more Trumpy House Republicans being elected there. So, uh, you know, this is probably not going to be a problem that goes away for Republicans. But again, I, you know, as a guy who believed what the Tea Party was saying, I like that Republican Party. And I think it's a little depressing to see all these House Republicans saying, this is too frustrating. This is too exhausting. We can't get the pre- we can't get on the same page as the president. One of two things happens. Either Trump gets reelected and the Trumpification of the Republican Party continues, or Trump loses in 2020. And I think then all of a sudden there'll be this giant round of finger pointing and a giant round of, okay, what does the post-Trump GOP look like? Turns out there's a lot of people simultaneously who want to spend more time with their families. Usually that's <laughs> the uh, the scandal explanation for why you're not running for re-election. But uh, it's even more than that this time around. And Jim, I think also your point is very well taken that uh, the principles that the Republican Party was fighting for literally less than a decade ago don't seem to be the same priorities they're fighting for now. And even if you don't have power in the House, you could at least be pounding the table about it. But it becomes hard to do that when you have a president of your own party who doesn't care about debts and deficits. So while in this era of increased polarization, it's important to probably vote for the Republican in just about every instance because of the radicals the Democrats are putting on the ballot, finding candidates who are actually candidates of principle and who will stand up and fight for the things that conservatives and most Republicans get excited about would be a very nice thing to return to. 
Sounds like there's a lot of House Republicans who don't really want to get to work. And today they had a good excuse for not getting to work. As we transition to our crazy martini, they couldn't get to work, at least not for a few hours. Shut down D.C. today. It's part two of the climate protests. Uh, there were the ones that were more organized, and I use that term very loosely, on Friday. But this time they were intentionally blocking traffic. And they weren't even telling anyone where they were going to block traffic. So that was really, really fun for people who work and have to commute into the District of Columbia. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank the folks at Radio America for moving our headquarters out of the District of Columbia more than a decade ago. So I could avoid nonsense like this. But they shut down major intersections like 16th and K with a big, giant pink sailboat. Uh, At one point, they lit a dumpster on fire. And then another couple intersections, they were dancing and throwing confetti on the ground. So... Jim, not sure what the point here was, but I know the most successful way to build a coalition is to make everybody angry at you. Sit in traffic to stop emissions. Sit in traffic to stop emissions. Um, There are two arguments going on around climate change. One is, uh, I guess there's some people say, you know, is it happening? Most people would say, yeah, it's happening. The question is why? The next big question is, what do you do about it? There is a giant gap about uh, what can be done about it, what should be done about it, how much is the United States responsible? What are we obligated to do about what is a global problem? Um, As I'm fond of pointing out, if you had a magic wand and made not just the United States, not just the United States and Canada, but the entire Western Hemisphere, meaning us and Brazil, where the rainforests are burning and all all that just disappeared and did not produce one more, you know, molecule of carbon, Within 10 years, you'd be right back up to the current levels because of how China and India are supposed to grow. So we got a much bigger problem than just, oh, you with your SUV, you got to buy a Chevy Volt or something like that. When you see what happened today uh, and the the effort to block as many roads in and out of Washington, D.C. as possible. uh, So first of all, that's a safety issue. Like, can you imagine if like in the middle of all this, say a dirty bomb had gone off in the middle of Washington, D.C.? By the way, listeners, this is the sort of things I think about all the time. Partially because I write thrillers and partially just because I'm paranoid. But like we have a whole bunch of people blocking off every egress route out of the city. And then all of a sudden there's a need for everybody to leave. On 9-11, we saw just how difficult it was to evacuate people out of Washington, D.C. With something like this going on, it would be even more uh, chaotic and impossible and and disastrous and stuff. Um, As you mentioned, burning a dumpster. I mean, I suppose you could say a dumpster fire is a metaphor for the state of the climate change movement. Oh, yeah. When you see people uh, twerking and throwing confetti and stuff like that, it's very clear. This isn't really about the climate anymore. Right? This, this is basically a big middle finger to, quote unquote, the establishment. And it's a little bit like that, uh, the, you, know, uh, you know, what are you what are you rebelling against, Johnny? What do you got? You know, this, this is not really about connecting it to the climate or anything like that. This is about anger at all those people in those cars. Uh, by the way, by the way, you know, it's Washington, D.C. Most of them are government workers. They're making, in probably in most cases, a comfortable living, but they're not by no means wealthy. If you're like, well, well you should be taking uh, mass transit. Anybody who says that is an indicator that they have no idea about the state of the D.C. metro. Um, <laughs> because let me just, for perspective, I, I just calculated, if you, if you need to get to downtown D.C. and you catch a 6.30 a.m. metro from the Vienna metro station on Monday, do you know what time you arrive, Greg? When? 3.45 Thursday. <laughs> I exaggerate slightly, but my guess is most listeners can get the gist there. So you have lots of people who by the way, also are probably registered Democrats, who are probably reasonably sympathetic to the cause of the climate change activists, but who also need to get into work that day, right? The government workers and you got, you know, service workers, you know, 
lots of people get in trouble if they don't show up to work on time. Do these protesters care? No. The only thing they care about is this like internal, does it make me feel good, right? This performative drama, this look at me, you know. So the interesting thing is, is that they're denouncing everybody else for their selfishness and lack of awareness about how your actions are affecting everyone else. And they're exhibiting the exact same mentality. It's kind of fascinating how much the, there's a there's very little self-awareness and there's a very climate change activist. Like anybody with a lick of sense would have said, hey, you know what? This is not achieving what we want. This is alienating people who might be sympathetic to our cause. We probably generated more carbon emissions today by making everybody sit in traffic for longer than we did on a typical Monday morning. We completely undermined every cause we claim to stand in. We shouldn't do this again. But there's no self-awareness. There's no capacity for self-criticism. So my sneaking suspicion is that uh, we'll probably get more of this in the future instead of less, Greg. It also infuriates me how the city handles this. Uh, the city makes it as miserable as possible to hold an event in Washington, D.C. They make you fill out a mountain of paperwork and just a bureaucratic nightmare. It can get pretty expensive to get the permits, too. But they want very specific information about where you'll be, what you'll be doing, and that sort of thing, how long you'll be doing it. And in this situation, this group is basically saying, hey, we're going to shut down traffic, not telling you where, not telling you when. And as it was happening this morning, the basic reaction of the city government was, eh, if it gets really bad, we might do something about it. But um, go ahead. And why? Because they agree with them. If it was any other conservative cause doing this, conservatives wouldn't do this because it's completely counterproductive. But if they did, they'd be arresting them in dozens. And it just didn't happen because they happened to like the cause. Yeah. Um, I mean, here's if, if Muriel Bowser, the mayor, of if she again, I, I assume she doesn't have much of a commute. I, I think she lives in I'm pretty sure she lives in the district. The uh, the D.C. City Council building is downtown. Um, if she was uh, unable to get to her job, would she be calling telling the police to arrest more people? <laughs> She'd probably be done to clear a path, at least. Yeah. So all, all of a sudden, you know, oh, wait, oh, now it matters. Now we got to people got to get through or something like that. Uh, but I wonder how many people couldn't get to, uh, I, I, you know, you walk around downtown D.C. You know, they have organizations like the World Wildlife Fund and uh, various other environmental groups. I wonder how many of them couldn't get to work today. <laughs> hey, if those people want to stop Redskins fans from going to the game tonight, I'm OK with that. Because uh, even though it's a road <laughs> game for the Bears, uh, we'll take any uh, advantage we can get out there. Greg, Greg, have you been following the, the Redskins this season? You're probably stopping more Bears fans from getting to the game than Redskins fans. <laughs> You're going to hear chants for the Bears tonight or something. Actually, okay, so honest to goodness, so the first Redskins home game was um, they had more Cowboys fans at uh, at the stadium than Redskins fans last week. That was embarrassing. It was, it was Philly fans took over the stadium towards the end of last season. And the arguments you get from Redskins fans like, ah, you know, it's a losing season. Yeah, okay, fine. It's also a uh, terrible stadium. It's way out in the middle of nowhere. It's not it's technically metro accessible, but you got to take a bus, like an, you know, an extra mile. It's either a mile and a half walk or, or you know, some bus that doesn't run nearly as often. It's a, Washington D.C. is a city of transplants, so they have lots of Bears fans like you, and Redskins fans, and Cowboy, uh, Cowboys fans, Jets fans, Giants fans. So you're always going to get a whole bunch of out out of towners, you know. In, in there. But also, like, think of it. It's, it's a terrible stadium experience, as I start ranting about something completely unrelated to politics, <laughs> as, as our podcast is wont to do. Uh, and you end up in a situation where it's a bigger deal for a Chicago Bears fan to be able, in the DC, who lives in the D.C. area to go see his team than for a Washington Redskins fan who has a season tickets and maybe doesn't want to go on a Monday night. Are you going tonight by any chance? Or? No. Okay. Well, <laughs> the view from I, my couch first of all, is I bet much you can better. get tickets cheap. <laughs> 
I probably could, but the view from my couch is fantastic. Excellent. All right. Well, there you go. So here's the thing. If you, you, you might be missing a Bears win, but you're not missing a particularly good stadium experience. Oh, no. I've been there, and it's not good. But, uh, and that's even before you start talking about the uh, behavior of the Redskins fans. So, but that's a whole other topic for another day. Jim, we'll uh, pick it up tomorrow. Hopefully, I'll be in a good mood. See you tomorrow, Greg. Good luck. Thank you. Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And be sure to tune in again on Tuesday for the next edition of the Three Martini Lunch.